Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, like I, uh, a lot of listeners, no doubt, um, I've been fascinated by the topic of Gnosticism for quite a long time. I first came across uh, the collection called The Other Bible uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, and uh, took it up with uh, great uh, fascination. And it was the same time that I was doing a lot of uh, reading, both in uh, postmodern philosophy and particularly uh, interested in the questions of simulation. I was a big Baudrillard uh, fan uh, back in the day, and I was also a, a huge Philip K. Dick fan. In fact, was plunging into his writings on the way towards writing my senior uh, thesis on uh, Dick's work. So I've really been working on on PKD for many, many decades, and it's always been um, uh, in the shadow of my interests uh, in Gnosticism. So I had this very strange kind of take on Gnosticism uh, that involved, you know, encountering the ancient texts and understanding something about their their contexts and how they related to Christianity and other uh, ancient religions, um, but I also always read it as a kind of symptom of a modern situation. You know, like a lot of people who uh, read about Gnosticism, I read Hans Jonas's great uh, book on the Gnostic religion, and he talks about uh, existentialism there, and he he sort of identifies Gnosticism as being a, a having a, a kind of modern quality to it, a, a kind of sense of alienation and a sense of of um, a restlessness for the beyond uh, that fit in very much with my ideas about uh, simulation and virtual reality and the kind of uh, wild worlds that Philip K. Dick um, predicted. And I little did I know that this this cluster of ideas would stay with me my <laughs> my entire life, uh, not just writing my senior thesis, but going on and I gave my first public lecture uh, on Philip K. Dick, and I, I have to relate one wonderful synchronicity that happened is that I had prepared this whole lecture about Gnosticism and Vallis and Philip K. Dick and all these things, and I was standing there, you know, kind of nervously preparing for my first public talk, and I realized, I said, oh my God, I hadn't, I didn't have a good definition of Gnosticism. I was, I didn't really prepare for if people didn't have an idea of what this was. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So I grabbed the copy of Vallis that I was going to be reading from, and I opened it, you know, quote unquote, to any page. And there, right where my eyes fell, right on the page, there was this wonderful little line. I, I can't quote it exactly, but well, Philip K. Dick goes, Gnosticism is basically the idea that the creator of the world is an ignorant or foolish God and that we must escape this world in order to find the true world beyond. And I was like, all right, thanks, Phil. Um, so uh, Gnosticism has been part of my, my intellectual and, and, uh, and spiritual life, uh, you know, kind of from the get-go. And... Uh, it, it it was one of the high points of my uh, of my uh, graduate school career uh, where, where I went to Rice, as, as many of you know, uh, to get my PhD in religious studies to do uh, a course on Gnosticism, which would be you know cool enough thing to do. But I got to do it with April DeConnick, who is uh, one of the leading uh, scholars of Gnosticism these days, and uh, not only you know knows her stuff. Uh, inside and out, uh, but has a, a good uh, a, a cantankerous approach, one that is very much along uh, my lines. We'll be talking about some of the different ways that scholars have come to talk about Gnosticism, especially more recently, 
and the way in which uh, April pushes back and offers uh, you know, a different way of thinking about it in her new book in particular. I mean, she's been writing many books about Gnosticism, but her new book in particular, uh, The Gnostic New Age, How a Countercultural Spirituality Revolutionized Religion from Antiquity to Today, uh, is not only a forceful statement of her, um, her particular views on Gnosticism and how we think about it, uh, but also one that, that really makes connections to our contemporary uh, situation, which we could think of loosely as the New Age, as the sort of spiritual but not religious, eclectic uh, search for transformative visionary experience and the kinds of stories that come out of that. And indeed, one of the things that makes the book very accessible as well as very um, interesting intellectually uh, is uh, not just that she spends doesn't spend as much time as a lot of academic books talking about the rival opinions. Uh, she trusts that if you really want to know more, you can go read those texts. And, you know, she alludes to them. But a lot of academic books, there's this kind of constant, you know, badminton game of like, oh, they say this, I say this, they say this. And, you know, they're, they're, always, they're fighting wars on every page. And here we get a nice statement of April's view views um, and in addition, she does a wonderful job of, of folding uh, contemporary films into her different chapters so that we get a sort of good handle on the different themes of the chapters by discussions of The Truman Show, Dark City, The Matrix, uh, Pleasantville, all this, uh, these sort of nice handholds uh, for modern people. But it's also making her, her point that these issues that are, that are raised by the Gnostics, the Gnostics are writing about, that they're experiencing, that they're building uh, religions and rituals and, and experiences around, uh, that the, the questions that they are wrestling with are still questions that we're wrestling with today. So it's a, it's a wonderful statement of her work in a, in a particularly accessible uh, vein. So uh, congratulations on that, and welcome to Expanding Mind, April. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, great. Well, uh, you know, I think, I think the, a fun place to start would be to situate your book and particularly the, your emphasis on Gnosticism as a countercultural religious sensibility or spirituality, mm-hmm. um, to put it in, in, in the, the context of, of some of the contemporary debates within scholarship about Gnosticism, what does the term mean, what should, should we even use the term. There's it's a lot of contention uh, you know, over the years about how we interpret Gnosticism, how we think about it. Um, it's it's a vast subject, but it, you know, it, it, talk about the way that you're you're sort of playing off or 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 calling out some of what you see are the kind of ex- excesses or even errors of contemporary ways that that other scholars are interpreting Gnosticism. Sure, sure. Um, I think I really started to think about this actually in the class that that you took with me when you were in that class. And when we were really, really trying to figure out how to go back and look at these texts and talk about them as Gnostic texts, because the, the, uh, the opinion that, that, that has kind of triumphed in academia right now is that there's a very limited, we can um, use the word Gnosticism very limitedly or not at all, because uh, it's not an ancient word but a, a word that was really uh, is really quite contemporary and that a scholar can um, create 
his or her own category of Gnosticism depending on their selection of texts and whether they want to, in what kind of typologies they want to put in place. So it becomes kind of slippery. Um, so my, my thought at the time, because as I was teaching that class, I was also reading into cognitive linguistics and was being very influenced by the, the, the whole idea that ideas do exist in, in not only you know, our minds, but also in our culture and in the sort of artifacts that we produce. And that I, I started to wonder if we could apply that idea to the ancient texts and start to look at the way that the word Gnostic ex itself was being used in those texts to see if uh, we could understand it as a ancient mental category. In other words, people were using the word when they used it, other people knew what they were talking about. It had a range of meanings and uh, one could use it in a positive sense or a negative sense or maybe perhaps even a neutral sense uh, depending on the, the, the sort of context that you had. So that, that's where I started. And, th and, and this uh, was th th this was different than I mean the, the, some of the arguments that that have been made in a contemporary sense. Um, well, the style of the argument will be familiar familiar to people, which is is that basically you know it's more a little more complicated than this, but basically we only know the word Gnostic. We only know the idea that there were Gnostics in the ancient world based on people who didn't like them. Uh, you know, anti anti heresy guys that uh, associated right. with the church that we, be, we we come to know as the Catholic Church, and so therefore, if we use if we use these terms as scholars as as historians to talk about the ancient Gnostics, we're really just playing into the hands of the people who hated them. So, it almost as a way to like protect their own right to be who they were, we shouldn't use this pejorative term. Um, and you, there's a certain logic to that. It makes sense. It's almost a, kind of goes right. in, 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 along with some of the issues in academy. But I, I, from the sense I get from you is that we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater when we do exactly. that. Exactly, exactly. And and it, and what it ended up doing, at least for me, is it put the brakes on. Like I couldn't do my work, so it, it became impossible to really talk about um, the these. Gnostic groups in any sort of comparative sense at all. And so what was happening is that scholarship was getting very almost ghettoized in terms of, well, you could talk about the Sethians, but then you could only talk about this one Sethian text because this group here or author may be very different from these others. And so what happened, what's been happening is that the differences have been being emphasized and being used as a way to stop us from really talking about the similarities, which yeah, and the, exist. and the de and the deeper issues. I mean, it's it's really interesting to me. It's like one of the things that that you you know going into uh, graduate school and really learning a discipline. Uh, it, it really, and this is true, you know, throughout the humanities, is there's that, and I don't remember exactly how you one phrases it, but there's like the clumpers and the dividers, you know, the people who want the specific accounts, they don't want to do comparative work, and then there are people who like to see large clusters of things. And this happens in all sorts of fields of, of knowledge, but it really has a particular effect on this question of Gnosticism, because it's not just that you aren't able to compare different groups, because there's so many groups, there's so many right. texts, they have so many myths, but 
you also aren't able to really wrestle with the 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 deeper thing that's happening. There's something happening right. in spirituality, in ideas about religion, ideas about the soul that's widespread that you kind of miss, I think, and I, that's certainly what you're arguing when you when you let go of this term. Right. So what is Absolutely. the baby that gets thrown out with the bathwater? <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's that. Well, and that is the question that I ask myself. And that's why I started by going back and really looking at how the ancient people were using this word. What, what were they attaching to this word? word? And I wanted to try to understand the, um, the Gnostics almost like an anthropologist. I wanted to understand, like, if I were living back then and I was going around and talking with these people in their groups, what would I find they were actually thinking and doing? Okay, that was... That, that made them distinct from other religious people in the ancient world. And what I, what I discovered, I mean, it's right off in the first page of Irenaeus and his Against the Heresies, uh, is that they are worshiping a different God than we are. And, and, and that, that started me thinking along the terms of, okay, so they have, they're, they're worshiping a different God. This is a transcendent God. And what, it's, and what that worship has done then is it's really flipped everything else about religion. And so then when you go through someone like Irenaeus or Tertullian or even the Gnostic literature itself, you can see that what they were doing by worshiping this transcendent God is then saying that all the gods of all the other religions are demonic, they're demons, they're lesser, even the creator god, even the Jewish god. And um, so, and, and that also meant that it gave them the power to look at religious scriptures differently. So they began developing hermeneutics in which that was really a reverse hermeneutic to what other religion religious people were doing and how they were reading text. So they began um, reading them to look for uh, proof, really, of this, this transcendent God, and that indeed uh, God like the Yahweh God was really a demonic creature. Yeah, well, you know, it's one of the things that always struck me when I first kind of understood about how much, uh, how important this sort of cross-reading or reverse-reading was for the Gnostics. I, I'd always imagined these scenes, and uh, because they seemed very, it, that seemed very contemporary. It seemed very, it was, it, it was like conspiracy theory. It was like a, a strange, you know, a strange cult over here rather than mainstream religion. But I always imagined like, you know, you know, two guys talking, and they're one saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm, I was just, uh, you know, hearing about the Garden of Eden the other day, and the story of, you know, the God, and you know, and then they disobey him. Why do they disobey him? And then they get kicked out, and this evil serpent tempts them, and the whole, and the other guy goes, "No, man, that's not the real story. Here's the real right. story. That guy is actually a fool. The good guy was in the serpent. They had to get out of there. They were trapped in a false reality." And I'm like. Oh my God! This is so science fiction. This is so conspiracy theory. It's so like like a Thomas Pynchon novel. And exactly, where does that come from? Is this something that emerges at you know in, in this time of late of, of antiquity? Is it is it is it where do, because it's such a it's such a modern sensibility, and you just don't don't it doesn't feel like you see it much earlier than this. No, I haven't been able to trace it earlier than than this, Eric. And that's the thing that's so puzzling to me. 
it seems to me that in the uh, first century we have, and this is what I actually call this Gnostic spirituality, is a, it's a new emergent cognitive structure. And I really think that revelation is coming into play here so that um, I, I, I suggest in the book that perhaps one of the places that the spirituality emerges is in the kind of temple experience in Egypt of kind of tourist uh, Greeks and tourist Jews going to those temples to, you know, pay to, to ask uh, questions or be initiated and, and, and see the ultimate God and that sort of thing. And I think that whatever those experiences were, that those people came out and said, wow, that God wasn't, wasn't Zeus. And that God wasn't Yahweh, so what the heck's going on? And I think that it's these sort of revelatory experiences that people have that turn them back then to their, the, the, their scriptures that they know, where they begin searching for answers to those, you know, their revelatory questions. And, then, and, that, and that's going to involve having to turn those texts upside down. You know, I love hearing that, that, that you know, speculation but it seems like a very legitimate one for for to me and one aspect of it is the the stress that you make on um both you know experience altered states other right. states of consciousness and then the notion that these experiences can help shift cognitive structures in that right. language and I, I know this is a really important part of your especially your more your more recent work is your you're interested in, in, you know, cognitive psychology. You're interested in the, the questions of, of altered states as real phenomena that make real differences. And this is already a shift from more traditional historical ways of understanding these texts where they kind of just assume everybody's people are kind of people. And so what we're seeing is the clash of ideas or the clash of ideologies or different religious right. structures or different power s systems and you're saying, okay, that's that's all going on, but there's also something that's happening to people that involves right. extraordinary experience, and that that it, it can have a real effect on cognitive structures, on the way in which we inhabit our consciousness. It can, and so what what I make the argument that I'm really trying to make is that Gnosticism is not a religion, but it creates religions. So it's a form of spirituality that's an ecstatic form of spirituality that where the person actually comes into direct contact with this with something transcendent that they identify with a transcendent deity or a transcendent reality um, and it's not just a reality that's out there but they feel it's eminent that it's something inherent in themselves so there's this there's there there's this connection that they have with this with this deity um, and that's powerful. That's really powerful. And, you know, to, to go around and think that you, you are in some way God, not just God-like, but really empowered as God. And so there are quite, there's quite a bit of, of ancient literature trying to deal with this, this, this idea and um, really struggling to try to understand what position that then puts the human in. And there are texts, both in the Hermetic literature, also Plotinus talks about it, that the, you know, the Gnostics think that they are at least on the footing with the, the gods of the, of the religions, if not higher than them, which gives them 
a very interesting human responsibility and um, also power. It empowers them to control the, the kind of lower deities and to bring about change in the world. So, so here, you, I'm glad you mentioned the, the Hermetic text because here's a, a distinction, uh, and I'll try to be as like crisp in the, the, in the distinction to get because I'd really love to hear your feedback. It's one of, the, one of the ongoing enigmas for me is that you can see the way that uh, the traditions that we call hermetic or in, in, as well as some mystery traditions share features, some, some very strong features, right. with Gnosticism with a capital G. There's a, a right. sense of the importance of transformative experience, of otherworldly journeys, of le- levels to the cosmos, and we see something similar with, with, with Platonism and Neo, Neoplatonism as well. But one distinction that people have made, I mean, it goes always all, all the way back to, I think, I think you pronounce it Festuguer, the, the yeah, great Festuguer, French, yeah. uh, is he made this very strong distinction between Hermeticism and, on the one hand and Gnosticism on the other. Hermeticism, even though they share elements, the Hermetics generally have a relatively positive feel about the material world, about the objects and images and icons of our world, that there's something sort of good or at least potentially yummy that is sort of running through uh, the, the, the cosmos. Right. And then some of these Gnostic guys, they just seem like the most, like, you know, kind of bitter, paranoid, uh, you know, they're just, they're, they feel, re- they're, they're com- no, this is a prison where we're, we're, we're trapped. We have to escape uh, the, the, the star lords that you, you try to, uh, you know, align yourselves with their demons. You've got to know the secret keys to get out of this place. And I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating, but it is a tension, a real tension. And I'm curious how you, why does that tend like what what caused that especially what what made the gnostics who seem more unusual than the hermetics in this sense what what helped encourage this almost um this more intense uh uh, uh devaluation of of ma- of the material world was it politics was it uh the grimness of life what what is your sense of what caused that kind of intense desire for escape well, let me just start first by just speaking to the hermetic Gnostic question, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that the hermetics are basically pagan Gnostics. I mean, they're, 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 they, it is a form of Gnosticism. They are, after, they are after worshiping the transcendent God, and actually they don't have as positive a value to this world as, as people like to Think they do. If you you know take a look at their literature, they have a, a varied uh, a view of it depending on what literature you actually read. Um, you know, because I mean the, the Hermetic literature is, is are, are compilations, so they have you know different views. So I, I kind of look at so I look at Gnostic spirituality because it's a it's one of these cognitive categories that uh, it has a lot of flexibility. So it's like the, be- the best example, I think, of every day is the chair. So when we think of a chair, we all know what a chair is. It has certain features. You sit on it. Um, but but then, then things start getting a little bit fuzzy with it. I mean, there are armchairs. There's armless chairs. There's even beanbag chairs. Chairs are different than couches, but exactly how they're different from couches is a question. Um, 
And so there's a lot of flexibility in the category. And I, and I see that the same thing with this Gnostic spirituality, is that there's some flexibility in how uh, different Gnostic uh, thinkers may view the world. But they're all worshiping this transcendent God. They're all after that experience. And then how, and then how that, trans, that experience transforms their life will depend on what religious traditions they're already embedded in, what sort of intellectual traditions they know, um, who they're talking to, so who's, who's immediately around them, and, and all these sorts of issues. So well, I imagine you're going to have some real pessimistic ones, and you're going to have more optimistic ones. <laughs> yeah, that that makes sense. And then you have some some Christian ones, and that's one of right. the really interesting twists. You know, I, 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 one of my favorite chapters in the book is your is your is your chapter about Paul, because even yeah. though I, I I know that there were Gnostics who read Paul, and that Paul's some of the stuff that are in the you know the New Testament, like some of the classic most important theological texts in the New Testament can be read from a Gnostic point of view. Still, until I read your chapter, I never, I realized that I was always thinking, well, there's Paul, who's kind of like a, what we would now think of as a, you know, a real Christian. And then there's these Gnostics who are interpreting him in their kind of wacky way. But you're saying something bigger than that, which is that actually there's no... You, we can't prioritize one or the other. The, the the idea that Paul is kind of a real Christian that gets misread by Gnostics is itself just an artifact of the fact that the Orthodox perspective won. And that if you actually go back to Paul, it looks pretty Gnostic. <laughs> I know. I know. And, you know, I first realized that when I read an article by Quispel, one of the last articles that he wrote on Paul, on Paul at the end of his life. And, um, and where he really lays out Paul's a mystic. But, they, but that, that article kind of reoriented me a little bit on Paul. And I, and I started to go back and, and said, you know, well, you know, what if we take off the Christian lens from Paul? Let's just, let's just remove it and, and see what we can see. I did the same with the Gospel of John. Uh, and I think actually the, the Johannine chapter may be my favorite chapter in that book. I, I really liked looking at John actually as a gospel that was written by an early Gnostic. Yeah. Probably it, a Christian Gnostic. Right, right. And that it's it's really funny because that's where you start to realize, I mean, for me it's part where you start to realize how how much how how these stories that we tell about these texts and these people are are so there's so much invested in them that there's like, wow, no, it's it's um that the that the orthodox view of these things still it still structures how we approach them in some sense that's, even that's invisibly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's a good way to say it. And that the orthodox view of things still structures things for us. We, it, we're brought up in that environment. We're brought up to look at these materials that through that lens. And it doesn't matter if you're. Jewish, brought up Jewish, Christian, or agnostic, it's still part of our culture to read these texts only in this direction. And so it, it, it took me a long time to figure that out. And once I did, and I, and I tried to remove that lens, wow, I think and things really opened up for me. Well, you know, this, this, this raises another question for me that, I, that I've always found interesting as someone who has been reading books. Uh, books about hermeticism and Gnosticism and ancient religion for, you know, for decades, and that, like a lot of people, it is both a intellectual pursuit and, mm-hmm. to some degree, a spiritual one. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that there's something about these questions, these issues that that reading history, wrestling with even very arcane scholarly debates, still feeds something larger. And I, I went on to the to your to the Amazon page for the the new book mm-hmm. and read a, a number of the of the very favorable reviews. But what interested me is, again, a lot of the people who were posting were like me. They were like, I mean, I got a PhD, but it's not, I'm not, you know, I didn't come in, you know, come into it as a, as a scholar with a capital S. And a lot of these people were clearly, you know, free, whatever they're, they they have their lives, they got their jobs and they're just happened to be fascinated with the stuff. And they're like, I've been reading this stuff for 30 years. I've read 150 (laughs) books about this stuff. And here's what's, and they're very, appreciative of scholarship but they're also very clear in their responses that they've had powerful visionary experiences maybe on psychedelics maybe through spiritual groups maybe out of no and that that for them reading and thinking and wrestling with his, these historical problems is also part of a spiritual search and so i just love to hear how you reflect on that issue both as a scholar who's writing things that are read by people who, for whom it is also part of this search, but also as a person who's someone who you, who had your own religious background, you have your own questions about life and you have also been, you know, th- those are also in the picture to some degree. So I just have to hear that kind of riff on, on the, the, the layers of studying this stuff. Wow. <laughs> That's a huge question. Um, one of the, so one of the things that I'm really interested in this uh, the power of the text and and how that intersects with the power of the experience and um, I, I'm interested in it because actually when I was a very young girl I was ten I also I had a I had a, one of these transcendent experiences just out of the blue and um, really reoriented my life. But it also confused me because I didn't know what was going on. Um, And so I spent, oh, my whole really young adult life trying to search through, you know, different different denominations of Christianity to try to figure out what had happened to me and could never find what happened to me in any of those contexts. And that search continued. uh, You know, I went to school and, and I and. I actually came across, you said that you came across the other Bible. I came across a little book that was written by Ron Cameron back in, I think, 82, maybe, uh, called The Other Gospels. And when I, I think I was 18 or 19 at the time, and I opened that up and started to read the Gospel of Thomas, and I mean, I was crying. I, I just said, oh my gosh, this was my experience. And this is something that, uh, why, why isn't this, this in, in the New Testament? And why aren't Christians talking about this? And all these sorts of questions went through my mind and really drove me to study uh, uh, what I do. Can you, so, can, you te- can you talk a little bit about what your experience was like it, to the degree that, that, that's, that you can relate it? Sure. It, it, and it is hard to relate. So I was, um, I was 10. And my family had just moved from uh, the city out to a rural area about five hours away. And uh, I, had, I had been plunged into a new school, grade four, and it was in a, we, the move was to a place that you had a very strong view of 
of a native population. So if you grew up here, you were kind of elite. And if you moved into the area, you were a bit lesser <laughs> on, the, on the scale of things. And so it was really tough coming into that environment as a fourth grader. And I remember uh, I was out on the front yard with my mom, and she had made friends with uh, another woman. Uh, I forget how, how that had happened, but nonetheless, they got to talking. And after, that, after this woman drove away, my mom turned to me, and she said, April, it's time for you to have a religious education. We're going to start going to church. Now, you have to understand that I was in an unchurched family up until that point, never really thought much about God or anything else. And um, I got mad. And I looked at her and I said, I don't understand. We've never needed God before. Why would we need God now? Besides, how do we even know God exists? Something along that line. And my mom, she, she looked at me and she said very gently to me, April, that's something you're going to have to find out for yourself. And she walked into the house. And as I turned, um, I was just suddenly overwhelmed with this light that, that turned all the colors very vivid. Like I can remember the grass becoming a really vivid kind of green. But I felt, and, and I don't know how else to explain it, but I felt presence. I felt a presence that was, was holding me. And I you get choked up talking about it because I felt loved and that all would be okay. And it just, it, it really did, did totally change my, my perspective on the world and life. And, um, yeah, so that was my experience. Well, that's an amazing story. You know, one of the things that, that struck me about it is the way in which in the background of this kind of ineffable glory, uh, was a kind a social tension, you know, a kind of I'm, you know, you're you're an outsider. Your parents were doing this partly as a way to assimilate. There's a tension between those who are in and those who are outside, which is part of the social function of religion and part of the bad yeah. side of religion in in many many ways. Um, and what it makes me think of, uh, 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 or or it segues to a, another question about the book that that I uh, about a chapter that I also really loved which is that the politics of pi is the way that these experiences even though on some level they're you know profoundly spiritual they're inter they're internal they're among you know fellow practitioners who are creating very weird cosmologies at least from a modern kind of perspective but they're also very much political agents and there was a strong kind of political dimension to how to be a Gnostic, how to think about how these things uh, uh, went through different kind of religions. So how did the sort of transgressive spirituality of the Gnostics kind of relate to the real political and social tensions of that, of that time? So I think, I think that these people were people that were I don't know if you want to use the word traumatized, but they were they were certainly living in a situation of Roman imperialism. Um, they they really felt um, stuck. I don't know how else to say it. There, I mean, uh, and 
you know, like on, on, we do have at least one gem from antiquity that's, that's a Gnostic gem. It's an Ophian gem. And on the, on the front of it is depicted Yaldabaoth. It even has his name. And he is depicted as a, as a, as a Roman warrior. So he's got, you know, the, the, the Roman um, soldier garb on. And now that's how, I mean, that's the transfer these people were making. They really understood that the, the gods who were controlling this world were, were like the Romans. They were like Roman soldiers. And so a lot of what they were trying to do since they felt like they couldn't actually rebel against Rome because they knew they would be destroyed, is they set up what I, you know, call a, you know, a, a cult, a cultic, you know, uh, a rich ritual activities in which they could go into the heavens and they could con- get control of the of the gods or the archons that were there, and that if they could do this, they were hoping they could affect change at home because there's an intimate connection in the ancient world between the gods who are running things and then the politicians and, and so forth that are in control of things and, and the laws that they're putting into place on Earth. And um, so they were really attempting to resi- resist that. Yeah, I mean, when, when you talk about that, that really also brings up, again, a lot of contemporary feelings. You, you think about the sort of mythology of, of, of The Matrix, not just as, as an interesting, you know, a film or a good science fiction right. film, but, but one that resonated with tons of people. I mean, it was really a, a game changer for people who watched it, especially younger people who watched it. If you talk about them like, oh, yeah, I mean, at least from a certain generation, it's it's not it's kind of ancient history now, but for for a while it was really a transformative film. Not just because it was a cool movie, but uh, that it it it's, it said something about our world, and and that's where you get into these issues of like how you know our our view of reality is being shaped by media, by what streams we're on, and you know you got virtual reality and augmented reality coming. All of this technologization of our our basic sense of reality of what's truth, what's not truth. And so some of this Gnostic paranoia, if you will, or Gnostic suspicion, you know, really strikes, uh, strikes a chord now. Um, I think so. You know, and, 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 but there's also a really positive side to it, too. And, and that's where, you know, you want it, you're in, in your book, you really want to make a connection. You use the, the word New Age in the title. That's a, you know, a, a right. extreme thing to do from a scholarly point of view. They're like, there's no real connection. What are you talking about? And, you know, you don't go too much into the history of, of the New Age or modern spirituality, alternative spirituality, uh, but it's clearly running through the, your, your, your concerns. So how, how um, resonant or how deep do you think the connections are in some ways between uh, this sort of phenomena of the ancient world and what people, the issues people are wrestling with today, yeah. spiritually, psychologically, culturally? You know, it's a really super question. It's one that I'm writing on right now. So my set, my, the next book in this Gnostic spirituality series is called the Gnostic society, where I'm talking about how in the heck do we get from the ancient world? How do we get that spirituality migrated into modernity? What the heck, where, where, how does that transport happen? And um, so what I'm arguing is that it, that it's, that, that the major factor is the, the migration of artifacts. 
so when these lost texts, for instance, come into uh, into the, the modern world and people start uh, reading them and interfacing with them, they 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 pick up from that those ancient sources those um, you know that that spirituality right from those texts and they transport it into their own experience and I think that's that's mainly what's happening with uh, this connection between Gnosticism and the New Age so there's some people are really selective I call those guys paranostics they might just want one they might just want to take one aspect but you get other people who are taking the whole frame and plopping it in in modernity um so you know uh, for instance blavatsky did this um and she was doing it through you know reading the heresiologist through reading uh this book by uh, charles william king on the gnostics which was popular at the time she also had access through king's book to pista sophia which had just been published and translated and so she she makes the, the 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 argument that there is a transcendent God, and um, it's 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 not the Jewish Christian God, and so on and so forth. So she brings the whole darn nine yards into under modernity. Well, you know, I love that description about the artifacts because that's always the way that I that I've seen that. I mean, for me, uh, books and you know writing. Are, are absolutely woven into the questions of spirituality. Even if we acknowledge that there's things about spiritual yeah. experience that are ineffable and that don't, yeah. aren't marked by texts, that we, there's even a line Eliade has about like we're sort of, as moderns, we're condemned to uh, learn about the life of the spirit through, through books. And, but to talk about, <laughs> about PKD, you know, to go back right. to Phil Dick, that idea you had, this particular way you phrased it about, Artifacts. We interface with texts that are discovered and translated, and then there are artifacts in our hands. We read the text, and something changes in us. Something we pick up something yeah. that was there. In in Vallis, uh, uh, Dick has this very science fiction notice uh, no, notion that the the text, the Nag Hammadi texts, actually contained a kind of virus. And that right. when, when you read them, it, it goes into your eye and it, it, it cross bands you and it turns you into what he calls a homeoplasmate. So he's got this right. science fiction reading, but in a weird way, it's just kind of an allegory of this process that you're, de- that you're describing, whether we think right. of it in terms of memes or cognitive structures. There's some kind of actual transmission that happens yep. in a material way. It's not just some idea realm and that that's a that's a fresh way of approaching the question of influence i think yeah and it's it's really exciting when you start looking back through the materials which is what i'm trying to do now to as i write this book in terms of you can actually start to chart how how the how these different i call them alpha channels like a young was an alpha channel and I think Blavatsky was an Alpha Channel, where they, where they, they, they're right there with those primary sources. They're also into the academic materials, which is another, which is another channel, and they're pulling that all together into a something new. Um, and then that something new, then that becomes channeled out into all different kinds of directions, and different new religious movements arise, or, or. Uh, writers pick it up or film producers pick it up so 
it's it's actually not as um, what do I want to say uh, difficult to track these things as you might think. Yeah, well, because then you can then then the ways that you trace influence and connection, you know, that I mean, it's a, it's something it's it's really an interesting issue because on some level that's what historians do. You know, if you read a, right. a book that's a history of this, they're going, yeah, this guy picked this up idea from them and read her book and mixed them together, and then you get this. And when it's done, sort of, you know, generically, it's like it's you know interesting, informative, but it's often not as not as juicy as it could be. But it changes its sort of character when you start to recognize that something is actually being transmitted. It's like right. there's a transmission. It's not just a kind of like, oh, I'm grabbing an idea from here and I'm grabbing an idea from, from there. It's, it's an interesting— why, That's why I'm calling them channels. I mean, channels. I mean, I'm actually channels because yeah. that's what's happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- th- this raises like a question that I kind of alluded to earlier, which uh, in terms of the fact that— this material, even even in particular, you know, if we look at all the texts you can read, all the ancient religions you can read about, in my experience, and I think to a lot of other people, in a lot of other people's experience, there's something particular about Gnostic material uh, that has a very um, uh, sparkly, infectious quality. It's very um, lively, uh, and then as as a scholar, again. You you're you must be aware, and particularly with the new book, which is written you know with a popular audience as well as a, a scholarly audience in mind, that you're you're aware that you're writing books that aren't just being read as intellectual treaties, arguments, critiques, da da da, da histories, but they're also being read in a context where a lot of the readers are themselves in a way seeking these channels right. and wanting these channels, and I'm just curious whether whether it's in terms of, uh, you know, letters you've gotten or, or co- contacts with individuals you've had or even your own sense of responsibility or, or that, that, that in some ways you're, you're nurturing something or you're allowing something to, to be reconfigured for, for people in a, in a real way. How, how does that, does that play much into your, into your scholarship or do you tend to kind of not think about that too much? No, I think about it. I think about it, and it's a it's a big motivating factor for me. Um, you know, I yeah, I was once uh, gave a um, a talk somewhere, and um, you know, after the talk, a scholar came up and said, "Yeah, I've read through that Nakamati literature, and yeah, that's just all just total craziness. It's just like mental illness craziness." And at that point, I thought to myself, "Oh my gosh, this person actually doesn't." understand what they're saying so so like so so all that person can do is say they're crazy and so my goal from that point out was to try to understand the literature not as crazy so like if if something was in there that that like looked crazy to me I was like okay I, I just don't understand it yet and I kept working and working at it until until I got it and then I wanted to write a book in which I could transfer some of that knowledge and some of that really appreciation for what these uh, Gnostics were doing. Well, one of the questions I've always had is when talking about the Nag Hammadi texts, you know, there's these, this jar with all these scrolls and they're, you know, they're kind of different. They're not all Gnostic. You got some Plato in there. Right. You got some Hermes in there, Hermetics in there. 
And of course, the Gnostic texts themselves are from all over the, the, the map. Right. You got Sethians, not Sethians. I know it's like an eternal and perhaps unanswerable <laughs> question. What was this library? Was it a collection of a Gnostic group? Was it uh, some monks who were just like to have a lot of different literature around? Was it uh, a group that believed that all of these had different purchases on the truth? Even if we don't really know, what, what is your sense about who put those texts together in, and why they're so diverse uh, as a yeah, collection? Sure, sure. You know, I, I think that these were Egyptian books of the dead. Uh, that somebody owned it was their own it was their own personal library which they were taking with them in their grave um, there, uh, there there's a really popular story that that these texts were buried by monks because they're close close to a, a monastery but one of the things that doesn't that you don't hear in that story is that they were at, that they're actually found in a burial ground and there was a skeleton next to the jar mm. so I, I I think that I think these are not these were not from the from a, a monastic library. I think this was a personal collection of somebody who is who is either Gnostic or an ancient esoteric kind of thinker who is uh, who these texts were important to because they they told them something about their life and their death and um, in some ways would help them make that transition successfully, just as the books of the dead did for, you know, Egyptians for centuries. You know, and, and it's great, too, because then that's another sort of connection between now and then. It's not, it's not simply that people today continue to have extraordinary experiences. Sometimes they transform their whole viewpoint and they become more transgressive in terms of mainstream religion, which is a pattern that you identify with the ancient Gnostics. But it's also the case that there's people then, you know, scores of people who are like us in the sense that we're just reading all these different things and they're, they're fascinating. We recognize that they're, they're contradictory. We, we know there's something going on, but we don't, we can't really identify any particular take as being like the one that you're going to plant your flag on. And that that's part of spirituality. That's part of existential life. That's part of being an awake person is that you surround yourself with these views, but you don't necessarily come to a, a specific conclusion. So it's, it, that's another point that seems very, very modern to me. Right. Right. I agree. Yeah. The, the, and, and, you know, I mean, these ancient Gnostics were like the New Age people today were really eclectic. So they were seekers. They were out there looking for answers from different sets of scriptures or, you know, different religious traditions, depending on where they lived and what they were familiar with. And um, yeah, it, but but they weren't, and, and I really want to emphasize this, they weren't doing like a cafeteria-style religion. They weren't just sticking anything on the plate. Um, they were really specific in, in the sorts of things they were looking for and the way they, they reinterpreted the materials and wove them together into this bigger narrative about the transcendent God and their relationship to that God. Yeah, that, that, uh, that, that totally makes sense. Um, we just got a, a few minutes here uh, left, and I, I guess I, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about um, the, the sort of way that, you know, there's more and more inf uh, information about cognitive science now. People are thinking much more about uh, the brain, not just in terms of 
uh, how we function in an ordinary life, but also about altered states. I mean, I think one of the reasons there's so much interest in in psychedelics today from a science, from a scientific point of view is because something's going on here. There's something that happens right. that's really extraordinary inside of the mind, and, and it clearly has... A, it's a lot like mystical experience. If it's not exactly the same thing, that's a you know contentious question. But clearly, part of the issue about being a neuroscientific culture is that we have to wrestle not just with ordinary consciousness, but with extraordinary consciousness. Right. And now, how how are, are those issues um, that are in some sense outside of historical questions or, or religious questions? How are those in? at least influencing you to take a different look at these these long-standing uh, scholarly questions? Um, wow, that's, that's another big question. But um, I think what it's done for me as a historian is it may, it's made me stop in my tracks and say, you know, we can't explain everything by society. We can't explain everything in terms of, like, social issues or political issues, that what we've forgotten is that, that the human being is a factor. And human beings have very particular bodies and very particular brains that, that function in, way, in you know, really um, ways that limit us to certain experiences. Um, as well as, you know, I mean, make other experiences available to us. But, I mean, we, we can't, we, we don't experience everything. We experience this world as, you know, upright creatures that walk on two legs and our eyes are in the front and, and we have brains with serotonin and dopamine and so on and so forth. And all of this affects, of course, the way we see, see the world and the sort of choices we make. And I think religion. I, I kind of, I kind of follow, am following Winkleman on this. Uh, um, that you know, religion is is coming out of, of perhaps really old shamanic practices where they're trying to um, control the, these sort of ecstatic experiences through repetitive ritual practices and altering you know substances uh, in order to um, move themselves into altered states of consciousness. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of where, where I'm working, and I can see that the Gnostics were, were doing some of this through their ritual practices. Yeah, and we do, some of, some of the texts that are in the Nag Hammadi Library, for example, it's very clear that they're, they're kind of mimicking or, or writing down things that were being done, and that yeah. they have sort of nonsense syllables and weird chants, and there's breath work implied, and we, we see traces of, of real you know, altered states oh, yeah. inducing kinds of practices. Yes, absolutely. And um, so I've become really interested, actually, in, I've really become interested in ritual because I think it is a way to control those experiences. And, um, yeah. And yeah. I, I just think that's what they were doing. And I think in the process of doing so, they were controlling their serotonin and dopamine systems and were probably, that had a psychological effect. Yeah, that 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 would make a lot like a ther- like a therapeutic effect. Right. Is, are you getting into those kinds of issues more detailed in 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 the current work you're doing? Um, you know what? I perhaps not in this particular book, but I will in the in the third book in the series, which is uh, will be more case studies of of like sort of Gnostic Americans. 
Oh, wonderful! So I did. That's great. I didn't. I hadn't realized that this was uh, just the, the the first of a of a trilogy, and that you're going to be bringing us into uh, the modern world. That's uh, that's great but news. I didn't, know, I didn't know it either, but it has it has manifested itself that way to me, and, and so that's what we're going with. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> well, I feel like also like mentioning that. Uh, uh, I'm a, uh, you invited me to this symposium you, you're, you're holding uh, pr- pretty soon here in, in, in Houston at, at Rice. Uh, and what's the, what's the theme? Tell, tell just a little bit about what the theme of that symposium yes. is. Yes, so it's called um, Gnostic America, and we are looking at the afterlives of Gnosticism in American culture and religion. So, uh, so we have a lot of uh, wonderful folks coming and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to your, your paper, and um, I'm going to be uh, testing out some of my thoughts that I've been talking about today on artifact migration and, and kind of how this shift into modernity was made and why it was made. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it tremendously. And also, folks, uh, Miguel Connor is going to be there, one of my yes. f- best friends, and I love the guy, and he's like, I love his show. And I think it's wonderful that there's room for uh, non-academic scholars as well, people who have been really working on, on this stuff in a long ways because it's, it's an important place to acknowledge uh, you know, the, the widespread interest in these things. So I look forward to it very much, and I want to thank you so much for, for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. It's been my pleasure. Great, great. That was April DeConnick, author of The Gnostic New Age. Uh, and until next week, uh, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.